We have to play the game the right way. We can't miss cut off men. We have to take care of the baseball, throw it to the right bags. We have to run the bases the right way. We have to not walk lead off batters. We're not snake bitten. We're not playing the game the right way. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, June the 3rd, 2018. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check out the show all the time over at our friends, MetsmerizedOnline.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you can get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. Check it out over at The Grueling Truth, part of the iHeartMedia Network. And if you have the time, leave me a review on the iTunes Store, Apple Store, really would appreciate it. Great, uh, great evening to everybody. Good evening, I guess. Great evening. Uh, you know, I've been hearing from you guys for the last three or four hours on Twitter, and I promised to get to the Mets. You heard that clip from Mickey Calloway in the opening, so a lot to, to digest after an awful weekend, uh, four-game sweep at the hands of the Cubs. Joining us in just a little bit, an uh, old friend of mine, uh, a guy that has a lot of interesting work out there for the Sporting News, the Hardball Times, also co-authored a book called Fastball John with uh, former big league pitcher John DiAquisto. Dave Jordan will be joining me. Dave had a chance to catch up with Keith Hernandez, and we'll talk about that. I, you know, I'll, I'll give you a kind of a, a take on that. Um, he also wrote uh, an interesting piece about the, you know, the disappearing 20-game winner, and I think with Jacob deGrom's recent start and how well he's pitched, I think uh, that's pretty appropriate because Jacob DeGrom might be a, a Cy Young candidate and have one of those King Felix years where you may not win many games, not the rate he's going. And uh, and we'll get into the book Fastball John, so some interesting stuff. So J- Dave Jordan will be joining me in just a little bit. But let's kick it off. A lot to get into. Let's start with uh, the comments from Mickey Calloway. And, you know, I, I saw the, the – the Twitter nonsense. And I even went on to the, the Periscope feed with um, Mickey Calloway's post game. Jeez. Oh, if you thought Twitter was the, uh, the gutter of sports commentary, Periscope commentary. Oh my God. I almost had to, I almost didn't make it through the post game press conference because of it. So it was just easier for me to Periscope it. And, and, you know, I just the way it worked out, but, I want to make something clear here to everybody, and, and, I, and I see the comments, oh, you've said, the, how do they handle these thunderbolts and criticisms of Callaway and demands of, well, he doesn't care, you know, I'm tired of him saying play the game the right way. You know, I've decided, as well as the organization, and this is what I've wanted out of this organization for a long time, was for everybody top to bottom to be on the same page. I think it's important. And it never was the case when Terry Collins was the manager, because Terry Collins wasn't really a bright guy. I'm not sure if there were initially... Um, he being part of this caretaker mode that Sandy Alderson really thought he was the right guy. The ownership liked him, namely Fred Wilpon. And I think they created a lot of chaos with that. I think with Mickey Calloway that higher, I feel at least from my perspective is that it's top to bottom. Everybody's on the same page and they've taken this broader view on this team. Now, very hard for me to get angry or to be surprised. Now they've been bad. 
the only teams that have been – I mean, they're right there with the White Sox and the Marlins. I mean, they've been bad. They've been worse than the Cincinnati Reds over the last you know, 30 games or so, maybe 25 games. And that's just not acceptable. And I don't think the talent on this team is at that level. They've played poorly. But this roster has been a revolving door now for the better part of five weeks due to injuries, poor performance, you know, starters going three innings, relievers have to step in and, and play roles that they probably shouldn't have had to. Uh, veterans uh, like Jose Bautista, who probably should be playing three days a week, now being summoned in to bat clean up and, and try to save the season. That's not necessarily the process that these guys signed up for, nor do I think I blame totally. I mean, meaning, you know, Mickey Calloway. Because, I mean, look, I don't think that you can ever plan for losing your cleanup hitter, losing Frazier at the same time. I mean, we lost Cespedes, you lost Frazier. Uh, the freaky thing that happened to, you know, Matt's, the freaky thing that happened to DeGrom, the freaky thing that happened to Syndergaard, Swarzak with the oblique. I mean, you just can't predict that. You can't. Frazier's never been on the disabled list. And we'll get into that. Like, Sandy Olson had some very interesting comments, and I'll get into that in the second part of this open. But uh, to me, for there's only a couple of different ways this can go. The, this, the concerning part is, is that here's Mickey Calloway, and you heard the clip. He's talking about playing the game the right way, and they're not playing the game the right way. And, and you don't want to sit around and talk about being snake bit, which makes me wonder if some of the media talk or some of the nonsense that swirls this team, no matter what, no matter how much they win, no matter how successful they can be, has seeped into that clubhouse where they, they're feeling sorry for themselves. And that's, that's not acceptable. And that falls on the manager. and The manager has to overcome that. Now, remember something. This culture, what you're seeing here right now, has been embedded so deep and has been part of this team since the minute Sandy Olson took over because the manager they hired from day one was a manager that wasn't a culture changer. He was a caretaker. And he's a guy that was more interested in protecting his players and making his veterans feel empowered than he was managing the club. And now this guy comes in, Mickey Calloway, and you know he's a rookie manager, and he's done some nice things. He's made some moves that certainly I think you could question. But from day one, I felt there was a plan. And sometimes the plan had to be adjusted because of the resources and the players that are at his disposal. And maybe he's a little rigid, and I can make that argument. I think you saw a little bit of that where he said, hey, you know, my guys are, you know, if Gazelman's not available because he's been overused. In the past, Worthen and Collins, they throw him in there to win a game. They threw a number of people's arms out. Worthen started it, and Collins jumped right in there. Scott Rice, Tim Burdak, you name it. Guys' arms are thrown out. Thrown out. Guys were overused. They got hot, whatever. They're not trying to do that here anymore. Have they lost games because of it? Yes. There is a plan, and that's what I, I, That's all I ask for. That doesn't mean I'm going to agree 100% of the time. There is a plan, and they come in with a game plan try, that gives them what they feel, with the players that are available, the best chance to win, and it hasn't been working. You can't sit here and say over the last five weeks that they've had a – I mean, can you name – the Mets 25-man roster on any given day. I, I have trouble, and I'm doing these shows, and I'm, you got to go to the Mets.com. I mean, oh, Scott Copeland on waivers. Uh, Ron, uh, Rain, I said, up, down. Uh, you've got Lobotone up, Lobotone down. I've never seen so many DFAs before in my life. But regardless, it falls on the manager to say, okay, why are they fundamentally poor? Why do you feel that 
they're not focused. You know, he talked about, and it's probably related to Jay Bruce and what happened with the pop fly. Why do you feel that Jay Bruce is out there not focused? He mentioned playing in New York and maybe the pressure, which makes me wonder if he's feeling some of the pressure. Is he feeling the pressure that this isn't Cleveland? Now, this is a much different animal. It's a much different beast. It's a cauldron. And the media is totally unforgiven. And you'll hear what Sandy Alderson has to say in just a few minutes. And sometimes they're unfair. But that's what this is all about. They have to be able to – if they're not going to go out there and be focused, they're not going to go out there and, and do some fundamental basic things, then there's no shot here. It doesn't matter if Cespedes comes back. It doesn't matter if Frazier comes back. It doesn't matter if Swarzak comes back. If they're ready to pack it in, and that's what this team has done. They packed it in last year. And I've seen them pack it in in the past. I saw them pack it in numerous times. It wasn't too long ago. I remember Jerry Manuel talking about, well, we don't have a chance to win when they had all those injuries in 2009. And I was like, well, if you're saying that to the media, well, they're not. They're done. And I remember all those purgatory years when they didn't invest in the team, but Collins never pushed these guys. They were never pushed. And I'm saying to myself, well, now's the time to eradicate that, and it's really going to be up to this coaching staff. I think you've seen how they can and potentially will do it. Steven Matz has been fantastic. When, when there's a willing player that, takes, that really listens to what these guys are trying to do and trying to preach, it works. And I guess the question for Mickey Calloway, and this is where in the modern game, I don't really know who has all that much power is. And if I'm Sandy Alderson, get the guys out of here that fall into that. Now, that might not be easy if it's a veteran making a lot of money, but if there's a lack of focus and there's a lack of, uh, of ability to embrace or change what really is fundamental type of situations, there's no reason why Michael Conforto should not be thrown to the cutoff man. And he's the darling of all the bloggers and all the Mets fans. When I said, you know what, to me, this is a guy, before you start thinking about trading the pitchers, because over the last 16 games, the starting staff has got a 2.48 ERA, and that's what El Stinko at times, Vargas in there. You know, that's a, a valuable, in an, in an environment, in an era, where you've got teams starting closers in the first inning. That's invaluable. To say you're going to trade that now when you have them under control, to say that you can't compete, even though you're three games under, at this time of the year, there's been teams that have been under 500. Go back and look at some of the Braves teams during their run. The 2008 Mets, the 1999 Mets. Now, this is not where you want to be, nor do I want to say that this team will accomplish what those teams have. One year, the Yankees started out like 12 and 19. They were all freaking out. I think they wound up winning 95 games. It happens. And, you know, the best path for me is to say, hey, you've got Cespedes coming back. You've got Swarzak coming back. You've got Frazier coming back. You know, that's your chance, man. Now you've got a lineup that has the depth that you, you, you would want. You should have enough offense to, to score. I don't know what the heck's going on. They don't score at City Field. They haven't all year. They just came back from a road trip where they scored five runs a game against the Braves in Milwaukee, which are teams that everybody's touting how great their pitching is. And, you know, they come back to City Field, and I know it's the Cubs, but geez. Luke Farrell? You know, it's frustrating. I'm frustrated, but to sit here and just, all right, let's throw in the towel here and let's rebuild or, you know, start to do something or demand something. The only kind of dramatic 
thing you can do. And this is what the fans want. The fans want, well, fire the manager. Okay, that makes sense. Let's fire Mickey Galloway 60 games into his tenure because that, that's irrational. Do a demotion. You know, they, they sent down Michael Conforto a couple of years ago. I don't think he's sent down. You know, I don't think he's in a position to be sent down. Uh, but benching somebody for a couple of days. And look, I think in another situation where they weren't in such need of offense, I think they probably would have benched Conforto. He deserved that after Friday. That changed the whole dynamic of the inning. You know, Jay Bruce as well. To me, you know, you don't embarrass a veteran, but to me, I, I don't know. And you don't know what they're saying behind closed doors. He gave a reason why he, the play developed as it is, but, uh, you know, outfielder should take charge. Now, an outfielder with a, a plantar fasciitis and a bum back probably doesn't feel as comfortable doing that. And maybe that's what happened. The whole double steal, that's on-field leadership. I have a feeling if Todd Frazier was around, an experienced third baseman, and maybe a catcher who was a little bit more experienced than Plowicki, I have a feeling that might, would not have happened at the, the, the lay at home. That's where veteran stuff comes into play. But this is, listen, this is by far a critical week. You know, you have the Subway Series. You've got you to beat up on the Orioles who have stunk all year. You get a chance to see what you can do. Uh, you have your best pitchers lined up against the Yankees. You can beat the Orioles. You don't need Syndergaard, Mats, and DeGrom to beat the Orioles. And uh, away you go. I mean, that's all you can do. All you can do right now, if you're talking just about this season, is get these guys back and go for it with those guys. And if it doesn't happen in the next three weeks and this thing gets worse, because now you have to get the 500 to be, to be taken seriously. You can't be taken seriously three games on the 500. And if it's, it gets worse than July 1, then you start to count down to, you know, where are you going to go? And if, if you're going to expect me to support trading off all these assets for single-A, you know, players out of the international draft or the Dominican League who could run fast and you guys all drool over them because some guy over baseball prospectus or some scout tells John Harper that they got tools, I don't want to hear it. Because what you got at DeGrom and, and Syndergaard and Mats and Wheeler – you know, it's not easy to find. They were lucky. That R.A. Dickey trade yielded Syndergaard. That wasn't supposed to be the key piece in the deal. It was supposed to be Darnell. Rebuilds are hard. And if you believe the garbage that you're getting from a guy like John Harper, the Daily News, well, if they do this, they'll, this, blah, 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 they'll be back in three years, you have no idea. And honestly, some of the names that have been peddled about that the Yankees could offer for these guys, I'm not sure if Peterson, Justin Dunn, or Anthony Kay are any, any worse. And you got those guys in the minor leagues probably just as ready. Just because it's a Yankees prospect doesn't mean it's the right prospect. And if they're trading him to, to the Mets, he's probably not someone that's going to come back to bite them. And every other team is going to fall into that. If you think they're going to re be ready to give you a haul for your player, you're out of your mind. They're going to find 50 different reasons. Well, Syndergaard is injury prone and... You know, I know he's great, but there's why you can't get this guy. Well, you know, then you're not going to get Syndergaard. And DeGrom is great, but he's going to be 30. Believe me, the media and the, and the stat guys and all the other guys that are out there, they're going to find a billion reasons to tell you why when those guys go on the market, why they can't get, you can't get as much as they, that they deserve. And if whatever you get, you better be right. Because when you trade a Beltron, that's one thing. That guy was going to walk at the end of the year, and, and you were lucky to get anything because his knees were ready to explode. And it was ironic. It was really amazing that they didn't. And they got Wheeler. And look at this. Here we are, Wheeler. That trade was made seven years ago, and Wheeler still hasn't arrived. Maybe he's just started to pitch well. Think about that. Seven years later. So 
to me, there's one pathway. You have to sit back. You have to take this medicine. I know you don't like it. You got to lay off the manager because there's nothing that he's doing that's going to be moving the needle one way or the other significantly. And all you can do is hope when these guys come back next week, they beat up on the Orioles, they hold their own, and maybe take two out of three in the Subway Series. And at that point, you're back to 500. Maybe you go four and one in that stretch. And the best you can do now is take off from there. And you got some tough games after that. And that's all you can do. And you hope that you get all the components. Now that Swarzak's back, the bullpen gets a little deeper. Hopefully the starting rotation now has arrived and you can get a little bit, uh, you can expect some more consistency. That should help the bullpen. And then, I mean, there's no reason why they could go into Atlanta and Milwaukee and score five runs without Cespedes, without Fraser, that they should not be able to score five, four or five runs when they come back if they're healthy. I'm sorry. Whatever's going on at City Field, I can't figure it out. You know, maybe Mickey Keller's right. Maybe they're feeling the pressure. So, anyway, let's take a quick break. When we return, Sandy Alderson had some pointed comments about how the media covers injuries and how the Mets evaluate injuries. And I wanted to play those for you and uh, have some commentary about it. Let's take a quick break. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast with Mike Silva. We'll be back with more commentary right after this. Each of these situations has to be dealt with individually. And you've got doctors. We've got medical fellows. We've got trainers. We've got the whole gamut. Um, but ultimately, you know, it's, it's, it's each individual and each individual injury that, you know, that we have to, we have to uh, um, make a decision on. And um, I can tell you, for example, um, with Syndergaard the other day, you know, we were sitting, I, I was with Syndergaard, the doctors, you know, the hand specialist and, and uh, one of our team physicians. And, um, you know, there was a series of possible uh, approaches, one of which was, hey, let him pitch tomorrow. Uh, another scenario of which was, well, you know, you know, these things, you know, they're, they're hard to predict, so you can put them in a splint for, you know, blah, 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 and then, you know, do this and do that. You know, like, and everybody agreed that was overkill. I decided not to have him pitch the next day because I thought that was a little cavalier. Okay, let's, let's see where he is after he throws a side and go from there. Um, I'm not the doctor. But at the same time, you know, those are the kinds of judgments that have to be made, and they're made with doctor input, trainer input, a variety of other things, and sometimes I make that decision and sometimes I don't. Sometimes it's overwhelmingly the doctor. But I guess, uh, you know, without belaboring this whole, this whole issue, um, uh, it's, um, you know, it's a case-by-case basis. We're back. You just heard Sandy Alderson talk about how they evaluated the injury with uh, Noah Syndergaard. And I was glad Sandy was pretty candid there. You don't really usually get that from him. But I think it's important because there's this idea in the media. And forget about the blogs and the immaturity that you're going to get from a dead spin or some of these other type of sites. But you're getting it from mainstream writers who sit in the press box making jokes like the Mets have a witch doctor down, and, you know, that's not the case. Do you think they're going to treat $160, $170 million worth of payroll of players cavalierly? 
And making decisions is hard. And sometimes it's the player putting pressure on you. You have the agent. You have medical advice, which ranges from conservative to let's push them. I mean, it's not an exact science. And everybody out there acts like they have the answer. Because whatever the Mets do, it's, you know, if it goes wrong, and, it, and there's always a percentage of likelihood that it's going to go, go wrong, they're going to get criticized for it. That's part of the position they're in. But sometimes that goes back to, and you're going to hear it in this next clip, history. And history that Sandy Alderson may not have even been a part of. But my point really will come from the next clip. So you heard Sandy talk about that. You talked about, he talked about their process, and he used Syndergaard as an example. But then, then he went even deeper. So why don't you listen to this clip? He went into deeper, uh, and really he called it his, you know, his soapbox. But I think there were some interesting nuggets out of that because it really is at the crux, I think, of the team's frustration. And if they start winning, I think a lot of this doesn't matter anymore. But when you're not winning, I think it's a big deal. Listen to this. And um, um, I do think that we have the resources um, to uh, – make the right decisions, and um, at the same time, we have to be aware of the various forces that are at play here. The first time we have a recurrence of an injury, you guys are going to go nuts, right? Ryan Church, all over, it's like, I've been here eight years. I don't even know who Ryan Church is, okay? (laughs) But I know he's been in the lead sentence on more than one occasion over the last few years. So, anyway... I don't want to get off, you know, this is not a soapbox here, it's something else, but uh, at least this is an opportunity to get a few things uh, not clear, uh, but at the same time um, make you aware of a variety of different things that are going on. So it's not always, gee, we got to be careful. Um, Cabrera, here's a guy who's playing, you know, he's not 100%, he's playing. Oh my God! He's, he needs a day off. He needs a week off. We got to put him on the sable list. He's playing. Will we lose him at some point? Maybe. Right now, you know, we want to keep putting a winning team on the field. A lot of people forget. I'm going off now on uh, a soliloquy here, but um, uh, we went 11 and one to start the season. We all remember that. I'll bet you nobody remembers that we're eight and eight in the last 16. Which, given everything that's happened, is almost as incredible as the 11 and 1. I mean, considering what we've lost, how we've lost, the players we don't have, and it's easy for me, too, to get lost in the moment. Holy cow, how did we blow that game? And the one the night before, and, you know. So, um, as with all things, you know, try to keep the right perspective and uh, focused and. There's no single answer to every everything that arises. About all I can not, say. Not, not if not not if you listen to the media. The media has all the answers. You know, the Braves have arrived, the Phillies have arrived, the Nationals have the most talented division. You can only win now the new thing is you can only win with young players. Well it's great that you have young Mets have that with the pitchers, but you want to trade the pitchers. The pitchers aren't considered young anymore because they've been up since twenty fifteen, twenty fourteen. So let's trade those guys to get more young players in the farm system so we could have three years of doing podcasts here of prospects. That's what I want to do for the next three years and hope that they're going to become Jacob DeGrom. I mean, you hear him talk about how injuries are reported. Uh, And look, he's also probably expressing frustration because you, again, you don't have a single answer. I've already seen it with Johannes Cespedes. They're talking about him taking live batting practice. On Tuesday, and already the, the junior doctors out there on Twitter 
and in the media world, they're trying to force him for the Subway Series. Well, I think they're trying to get him back because they need him. I don't think the Yankees matter. That's nice. And I know historically ownership may have done some of that stuff. But they also talk like Jeff Wilpon's there, and he can. He's the owner. He can and go in and, and say, oh, this is what's going to happen. I'm sure he has his influence, but it's, that's not how it works. You know, that's not how things work. You know, this isn't fantasy baseball. This isn't your, your Sunday softball league. And the information that's thrown out there and the reaction, and then you got talk radio. I mean, is there an ounce of maturity anymore on talk radio, including Francesa? I mean, it should not be this podcast and me giving you perspective. And then when you try to give perspective, say, okay, let's take a step back and look at this, how it's looked at in the real world. Well, you're being, you know, an apologist. You're, you're, you know, you're taking uh, the Mets side. You know, anybody who's listened to this show for 10 years knows that I've criticized this organization. I've criticized ownership. What, what, you know, here's the reality for you guys. They're not selling the team. They're not. So forget about that. If that's what you're going to spend the rest of your born days trying to hope to accomplish, forget about it. It's not happening. They've already told you that. If they survive Madoff, they're going to survive anything else. You know, so, I mean, I think that's really what it comes down to. You don't want to like the owners, so you're going to be unhappy about the team. To the end of time, I think that's sad. You're demanding that the team fulfill your immediate desires, whatever the nonsense that is, because you're mad and you're frustrated. You don't think they are? You think the way they lost in Atlanta and Milwaukee with a number of dink hits didn't frustrate them? The bad luck that happens when you play tight games, though, that's part of playing tight games, and part of that is they, they, they don't have the roster right now. Um, they're going down to the depths that they probably you don't want them to. And yeah, I understand where the whole young player narrative comes from. It's like, well, if they had guys ready, this wouldn't be as much of an issue. But I mean, what the Yankees have done with Andujar and Torres is essentially what the Mets did three years ago with bringing up the Syndergaard Mats, is they replaced Dylan G and John Neese, two blah pitchers, with two high-performing upside pitchers. That's not common. That's not common. Now, you could criticize the organization for how they develop their prospects, and that's fair. You can criticize them for maybe the hitting philosophy that they're espousing up and down the minor leagues. That's fair. Although Brandon Nimmo kind of makes you feel like, well, he, he seems to be doing okay with it. And I've been a Brandon Nimmo critic. I wasn't sure. He's developed. So they kind of get some of it right. At the end of the day, I just uh, what I don't understand here, and I'm not trying to get away from the point that I understand they're playing bad, and they have to turn it on, and like now, like Tuesday, you can't go and have the Orioles smack you around. This thing could be over by the end of the week. They could be really in a, in a spiral that they probably can't recover from. So they put themselves, after an 11-1 start, they put themselves in the worst possible pickle they could be in. I'm not saying that that's not the case. What I'm saying is there's no sanity in perspective anymore. Everything is nonsense emotion, nonsense narratives, immature babble, and I'm tired of it. And for the most part, when I've done call-ins and when I've done um, you know, mailbags and, 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 and the, the Google Voice thing when you, you leave your message, it's not been that bad. But I mean I read some of this stuff, and I'm just like – it almost wants you to make you run because you're like, do you guys understand – the position this organization is in. 
and how you manage a roster and how you manage this thing. And that's what I'm trying to do here is say this. I am not in propo- I'm not a proponent of them tearing it down because I don't think a roster with these pitchers pitching like they are with Cespedes and Frazier coming back is Marlins White Sox bad. And I don't think they're in this you know, quit time that they were under Terry. And I think they put a lot of time in spring training to try to create a new culture. And I think losing sometimes brings back old habits. And, you know, I know that there's the old process and outcome that I uh, preach, but, you know, somebody's got to step in and maybe the return of Frazier and hopefully the return of Cespedes after plays a big part in them putting up some runs and being able to consistently put pressure on pitchers and turn this thing around. Because you don't get starters like DeGrom and Syndergaard. I mean, DeGrom is at an all-time – I mean, he's, he, he's pitching at an all-time level. What you're seeing is vintage like when Pedro Martinez was, was mowing people down. It's a shame he hasn't gotten more wins. He should be 9-0, 10-0. I mean, enjoy it because, you know, you want to give it away. Oh, let's give it away right now. Let's, let's, let's reboot. The mindset of – Winning everything or being a top two or three team or not trying is so pervasive, and the fans and the media are the biggest culprits of it, and they're the first ones that get screwed by it because you'll sit around for five years paying a lot of money to see an inferior product with a promise of tomorrow. And that's the thing that pisses the fans off, but they're the first ones to, oh, that's it. We didn't get what we want. Start over. It's like the old Nintendo game. When you didn't get what you want, you hit the reset button. Oop, reset, start over. It's not the way sports works. It's not the way the world works. And essentially what you heard from Sandy Alderson, and the reason I put, put those clips up there is there's a plan, there's a process. And he's actually making, he's laughing at the absurdity of the media and the outcry. But at the end of the day, how do you stop it? You win. And the winning's got to start now because you've got about three weeks now to really get this thing pointed in the right direction. Fortunately, you haven't been buried, but you can be soon. And at this time next week, when I'm on the air, we'll see how, how things are. Let's take a quick break. When I return, Dave Jordan. Let's get, uh, let's get back to some more fun stuff. Let's have more fun talk. Dave Jordan, uh, author, co-author of the book Fastball John, also wrote a great piece, had a chance to talk to Keith Hernandez about his memoir that just recently came out. And we'll talk a little bit about the historic type of run that DeGrom is on and what it could mean for him if this continues in terms of his place among uh, you know, Cy Young candidates and great pitchers. And maybe take a little bit of a look uh, about how we evaluate pitchers. Maybe we have to change that. So we'll take a quick break. When we return, Dave Jordan, author of, uh, co-author of the book, Fastball John, who you could also check out at Instream Sports on Twitter. We'll have him here. We'll be back right after this. Hey Mets fans, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. If you're looking for the best unbiased and independent coverage of the New York Mets, then look no further than MetsmerizedOnline.com. Metsmerized Online is the go-to place for comprehensive Mets coverage, including exclusive interviews, daily original articles, great weekly features, in-depth analysis, minor league reports, game-by-game breakdowns, and so much more. Find out why thousands of fans turn to Metsmerized Online every day to get the latest news and opinions about the Mets. 
Coming from an impressive staff of the most passionate fans and skilled writers ever assembled all in one place. Check it out for yourselves, Mets fans. Go to MetsmerizedOnline.com right now. That's Mets, M-E-R-I-Z-E-D, Online.com, and get Metsmerized today. We're back and joining us first time on the show. Old friend of mine uh, has a great book, co-author of the book, Fastball John, also a contributor to the Sporting News. You also can find some of his work over at the Hardball Times. He is on Twitter at InStream Sports, Dave Jordan, here on a Sunday night. Dave, pleasure to have you on. Long time no talk. How are you? I'm doing great, Mike. Thanks for having me on. This is great. Well, pretty appropriate. Back in the winter, and before we get to your Keith Hernandez uh, conversation, because I want to get to that, it ties in uh, your article over at the Hardwell Times, which talked about the meaning of 20 wins, and you really dived into how two pitchers, and in this particular piece, you compared Bob Forsh and Eric Rasmussen back in the 70s, Mm -hmm. two pitchers statistically could pretty much put up the same season, but drastically have different results. And last night, you know, we saw Jacob DeGrom, who's having a terrific season. As a matter of fact, right now, uh, going into today's action, he had a 252 ERA plus. I mean, that's Pedro Martinez level, like 1999, mm-hmm. 2000, great. But he's only got four wins, and if you rank him in wins, he's he's uh, he's not even in the top ten. So, you know, it's already been discussed, and I know it's real early, that the Cy Young voting – more and more has to move away from wins. I know this debate's been going on for well over a decade, and in the annals of the sabermetric world, even longer than that. But pretty appropriate, as you talked about in your Hardball Times article, I think the win stat and, and looking at pitchers, especially with the way bullpens are now, we have to totally reevaluate this whole thing. Well, you know, it's funny. Let's go back to, uh, I believe it was 2010, with uh, Felix Hernandez, the old King Felix, who's uh, – you know, a little, little hurt these days, but uh, he, he put up spectacular numbers. He led the league in ERA. He led the league in innings pitch. He led the league in batter's face. And uh, he had an ERA plus of 174, which is pretty high in the, on the leaderboard as well. And he went 13 and 12. So I think that we're pretty much – I think we're almost past that. I mean, you had almost handed to Brian Kenny for, uh, you know, really pushing his uh, kill the win uh, message. Um, but there's no doubt that, uh, that DeGrom is, is going to be uh, in that conversation if he keeps this up. His numbers are spectacular. He's got an ERA below one and a half right now. Uh, he's close to 100 strikeouts with, uh, you know, less than 73 innings. Um, and for those, those folks, his whip is close to one. His FIP is below two, which is outrageous. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's really uh, – he's going to be part of that conversation. But what's interesting is <clears> – <throat> You look at the top four uh, pitchers right now in terms of wins, Max Scherzer is nine, and he already plus a 208. Corey Kluber is eight. He's at 223. Louis Severino is eight. He's one, a 188 ERA plus. And even Charlie Morton, who's tied with a number of guys at seven, has an ERA plus of 171, along with Verlander, who's at 312. So, so far, it looks like it's holding up a little bit. There's a guy in uh, San Fran, Chris Stratton, has seven wins. His ERA plus is around 86. But if you look at Vargas, Vargas had a tremendous first half last year and then kind of fell off at the uh, end of the season. And his ERA plus ended up being 109, and he ended up with 18 wins. And, and we see where that led to right now. 
Absolutely. Dave Jordan with us. Uh, you can check out Dave on uh, Twitter at InStream Sports. And, uh, you know, you really go back. It's interesting because, I mean, I, I watched baseball starting in, in the late 80s and, and 90s. And even up until when I started in this new world of new media, independent media, whatever you want to call it, the win was still a valuable stat. I remember 2006, Steve Traxel won 15 games. He was well below a league average pitcher. But the Mets scored five, six runs a game for him. And, uh, you know, it's it's interesting because now with this concept that down in Tampa, with the relievers starting, and I think more importantly, you look at what Seth Lugo is doing this year, where Seth Lugo is going to maybe become the first swing pitcher where he's going to start, and some of his starts are going to be four innings, maybe five. Uh, he's going to be a bullpen arm. And he has a role, but his role will probably prevent him from really gaining – traditional stats and with the inability of teams to really afford let's face it you know the Mets are still lucky despite their struggles they got four really good starters I talked about that in the open and that's uncommon but teams don't really have that and they're gonna have to find creative ways to bridge and almost look at 27 outs so you know do we are we at a point where with the voting for awards where as we evaluate can you see some of this ERA plus uh, FIP I know it could get much deeper. That's almost the beginning or the beginning of the tunnel of what sabermetrics can go down. You know, how do you evaluate, I guess, if you were looking at the best pitchers in baseball, how are you evaluating? What are the numbers you're looking at? Um, definitely uh, checking out ERA plus and, 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 and FIP is up there as well. That gives you an, an indication of how well, what they call fielding independent pitching, of uh, how well the pitcher is doing uh, outside of, you know, the, uh, the, the shortstop, the third baseman, just, just him and the batter. That's very good. With, we all learned that from, um, from rotisserie baseball. That's always been a uh, stalwart with that, and, and most of the uh, sabermetric guys grew up on those numbers. So I, I think that's where it's going to lead to. Uh, I do think that, you know, based upon my book, I mean, or my, my, my article, I mean, if you see a guy winning 20 games, it's going to be, you know, he probably had a tremendous season. The last 24 pitchers that won 20 or more games had an ERA plus of 130. Um, and, and you look at that in terms of a greatness uh, line, of all the pitchers that are in the Hall of Fame, or, or of all the pitchers who are eligible for the Hall of Fame, only like four or five of them have an ERA plus of 130 or better and are not in the Hall of Fame. So that's, the, that's kind of the line for me. Let me throw something out even more amazing with DeGrom. His batting average on balls in play is 315. That's actually in the top 20. Number one, yep. the highest BA... VIP is John Gray, 315, which means he's been by about 15%, a little rather unlucky. It's about 15 points higher than the 300, which is pretty much, I guess, the baseline, which that's just a yeah. throwaway. I don't know if that's real. I mean, with the way that the lack of contact you see today, they may have to reevaluate that 300, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, I mean, also, it is only 12 starts. So let, let's see where that, where that number ends up. I mean, it, it basically says that, you know, the, the batters are getting lucky against a guy with a 1.49 ERA. So you're going to really, you know, if that number comes in, maybe uh, maybe his numbers get even better. But, again, it's going to be, I mean, he's been uh, the victim of, of non-support, you know, the old the old thing they used to say about Tom Seaver with the Mets in, in, in the 70s. Um, I think that um, basically, yeah, he could he could be even better. And, uh, and he's been very spectacular. But – Part of pitching is confidence, and he's going to really need to feel that confidence that the guys behind him are going to score more than two runs to, uh, 
to get him there, to get him that victory. Absolutely. Dave Jordan with me, uh, contributor over at the Sporting News, co-author of the book Fastball John. We'll get to that in a few minutes, uh, also at the Hardball Times. You know, I, I was saying earlier that, you know, I'd love to get Keith Hernandez on the show. I'm low on the pecking order. You know, he's all over the place. And yeah. shows like this are are not a priority when you're Keith Hernandez. And I get it. That's fine. I mean, there's not much I can offer in terms of reach that he hasn't already re- received. Maybe from an interview quality, I don't know if they care about that. But after so many times of hearing Keith, whether it be with Barstool Sports or WFAN or an SNY, I said, how can I talk about the book? And And then I read your piece over at Sporting News. And then I said, well, you uh, you had a chance to do a book with John DeAquisto, so you kind of get the whole baseball life. And that's really what Keith Hernandez's book, it's very similar to Fastball John, where it was about Keith's road to the big leagues with the Cardinals. It ends actually in 1980. So I guess my question to you is, I wanted to get perspective from someone who had a chance to interact with Keith. One, what did you think of the book? And two, what was your feel of you know, what did you take away from Keith Hernandez after speaking to him, I guess, for about 15 minutes or so a couple of weeks back? Well, you know, it's so funny because he, he did – it was, it was uh, the final day of his book tour. So he was pretty, he was pretty tired when we spoke. Um, he, he had a lot to do. And, um, you know, I, I think that for any memoir to succeed, there are four elements there, – there are four boxes they have to check. You know, they have to provide enough pre-fame moments for the reader to identify with the subject, talk about his struggles as a kid. And basically, Keith, Keith's father, I mean, he may have been the first helicopter, the sports helicopter parent on record. Um, so he went through a lot, and his father expected a lot from him. So there are a lot of kids out there right now, and there are so many parents who are, are driving their kids to lax practice and basketball and soccer and baseball um, and, and, and football. And, and basically – there are expectations that everybody wants. I don't think parents want their kids to be, you know, major league players or, or professional players, but they do think that they could get some kind of uh, help with paying for college. And I think it's the college hysteria that, that's driving so much of that. And I don't think anybody understands that more than Keith Hernandez with his father. His father, father believed that, you know, he, that Keith had the ability to play at a, at a collegiate level, and he pushed him very hard. So there's a lot of identification there. So Keith nailed that. He checked that box. He provides enough nostalgia so the reader enjoys the ride. He talks about Ron Hunt, rooming with Ron Hunt, drinking with Ron Hunt. He, he talks about these players from yesterday that we haven't heard of in decades. Katie Cruz was like one of his best buddies who was crushing it in the minor leagues, but he couldn't really adjust to major league pitching. And he talks a lot about that. So he brings up a lot of names of, of real deep baseball fans like, oh, yeah, I remember him. And they, and they are able to dig into that. He drops in a couple of holy cow moments every few chapters. And I know we did that with, uh, with Fastball John. And that's, that's extremely important. And, and, you know, when we wrote Fastball John, I wanted it to look like – I wanted it to feel like a Netflix series. I wanted every chapter to feel like, you know, the reader could sit down on a Sunday morning at 8 o'clock and not so much binge read or, or binge watch my book, but I wanted them to enjoy and savor a chapter a week. And I wanted it to be their literary TV series. And I, and I prepared for that by reading every TV recap on The Sopranos, on Mad Men, on Game of Thrones, everything, just to see what the, the tone and the style of a TV series would be like in a book form. 
And um, and every and what I learned is like when you're watching an episode of The Sopranos, at like you know 40 minutes in, there's always this crazy holy cow moment, you know, to to be polite. But um, <laughs> I wanted that in the book, and we have a lot of those type of uh, moments in Fastball John. Keith Hernandez has a few of those in his book as well, where he runs into a girl who's, you know, making a really bad life choice, and he talks about that. And, um, and you're not expecting that at all. That comes out of nowhere. So he hits that box. He also admits to a lot of on-the-field faults, mistakes, and errors in his life. I mean, again, he doesn't get past 1980, but he does talk about, you know, some drug use in the mid-'70s and, um, and how he didn't exactly um, have – have as much success as a rookie as he thought he might, he should have. And he talks about the mistakes he made and how he went back to the minors to correct that. So, I mean, it, it, it really hits all the boxes in, in, in terms of that stuff. And he's such a very freewheeling sense of, um, of dialogue and, and how he has the conversation. It's very conversational. And, um, and they did a really spectacular job uh, putting that together. I, I like the book a whole lot. And you had a couple of nuggets from the interview, which you guys could check out over at the, Sporting News, just Google Dave Jordan and uh, Keith Hernandez. It'll come up right away. First thing was, and I would love, and I don't know, maybe you did, and it didn't make the, the editing floor, but he, he talked about how Whitey is the best manager he ever played for, which doesn't surprise me because I've heard a lot of good things about Whitey. And many, many, many moons ago, I read his book, White Rat. I probably have it somewhere in my closet. And uh, I remember it being an interesting read. Probably would appreciate it more than I did when I was, whatever, 13, 14, 15 yeah. years old. But, um, you know, did, that's interesting because he played for Davey for a while. He's never said anything bad about Davey. But if you go back to the whole Cardinals-Mets rivalry in the 80s, if we had social media back then, maybe Whitey versus Davey would be a thing, you know, during those pennant yeah. races. So. Uh, any thoughts on that? I found that a little interesting that he said Whitey was the best manager he ever played for. Well, I think Whitey Herzog recognized the, the, the beauty of grass versus turf and, um, and was able to capitalize on it. And, and I think, you know, he looked at, from, from Keith's perspective, Whitey looked at, you know, what the Cardinals had and the hand he was dealt. And, and he tried to build a team kind of similar to, um, to what he had in Kansas City, where he just utilized the, the, uh, the ballpark as much as he could. And he built the team around speed and defense and, and quality pitching. So, and, and Keith is, is very, in the book, he's very objective. And, and, and he admits when, you know, he may have been unhappy with somebody at the time, but he'll, he'll grudgingly admit that the guy was a gamer. The guy was, was a solid performer. And, uh, you know, and what made it very interesting is that I was doing some research on the side for another project, and I came across some quotes that Whitey Herzog basically said, in 1980, that he would give up either Ted Simmons, who eventually did, and Keith Hernandez to get pitching. And he said that around uh, December 1980. And, uh, and Keith wasn't aware of that. He wasn't aware that Whitey Herzog offered Neil Allen, Tim Leary, and Doug Flynn uh, to the Mets for Keith Hernandez and was turned down twice. And, uh, and I remember well, when yeah. he, he basically did a double take in the interviews. Like, who do they, who, who, who do they offer for me? <laughs> That was kind of very funny. <laughs> and, he, and he basically said, well, that would have been a good trade. But it was probably a better trade than what they got with Rick Ombi and Neil Allen. And it tells you a little bit that – and there's two things I take away from that. Number one, that the Mets were in on, on Keith for a while. It was a player that Frank Cashin thought could make a difference. 
with this club. Mm-hmm. The second thing is looking at the excerpts that you have. I guess they're from the Sporting News or from a publication in the article. The candor, and this is not the first time I've looked at some old clips like during off-season hot stove or in-season yep. quotes from general managers and, and managers. The candor from Whitey Herzog about what his plan is, who he's looking to trade, you know, saying something like the only untouchable in the club is Gary Templeton, which turned out not to be true if you look back in history because he wound up getting traded for Ozzie Smith. You would never in a million years see a general manager be that candid right now. Uh, you know, I know that we're used to Sandy Alderson here, who's borderline uh, a lawyer, yeah. but uh, – you know, it's just so different. It's really amazing. And I'm sure you, you took – while you were doing your research, I know that you and John wrote the Fastball John book, but I'm sure you did research. But also for that Hernandez piece, I'm sure you saw more of that as you go back in the annals of the Sporting News or Sports Illustrated or whatever. Yeah, I mean, it, it was pretty amazing some of the things you would see and, and, and guys talking about each other. I mean, in Fastball John, we had talked about a couple things where, where he was at some kind of event. And he was talking about how he thought, you know, Dave Winfield was, uh, you know, didn't need all that money. And, um, and then we, and, and we had a good laugh about that. And John's like, I can't believe I said that. And then sometimes these guys get caught off guard. And, um, you know, I think Whitey Herzog, in, in those articles, he was at a banquet. He might have had a, a few in him when he said that. Who knows? Um, and, and, and Keith basically said, you know, was Whitey just BSing when he, when he, uh, when he remember, was he playing possum or something like that? But I do think, uh, the, the Mets perhaps had a little a reluctance initially with, you know, why is, why is Whitey Herzog offering us the NL, NL MVP for, for these three guys? And, uh, and although <clears throat> Tim Leary was the Mets' best pitching prospect, Doug Flynn had just recently won the gold glove, and Neil Allen was a, a, a solid uh, elite pitcher, but it took them three years to consummate that deal. And I, I watched an interview with uh, Herzog around the time that he tr- actually traded Her- uh, Hernandez in, uh, in 83, and he said he's been trying to get Neil Allen in 1980, in 82, and 83, which I found really uh, revealing. And he didn't wound up. He wound up not being great for the Cardinals, but that is interesting. That it, that is very revealing. Dave Jordan uh, at Instream Sports on Twitter, co-author of the book Fastball John, uh, joining me here. Uh, Dave, after reading the book, after talking to Keith, you you know, growing up, obviously watching Keith and. I'm sure you check mm-hmm. out Mets games uh, and see him during the broadcast over the years. Do you have a different opinion of Keith uh, now versus before reading the book and talking to him? What, what are your thoughts in general? Can I, can I tell you? I mean, most of the interviews that he uh, conducted during his book tour a couple of weeks back were um, <clears throat> everybody spoke about Seinfeld. Everybody spoke about Seinfeld. And, um, and, and one of the things that I had said to the book publishers early on was that you know I had some really compelling research, and I'm not going to talk about the cat. I'm not going to I'm not going to ask him to help me move, and I'm not driving him to the airport. We're going to talk about baseball, and um, you know I was really uh, <clears throat> excuse me when when I spoke with him, I honestly felt like I was speaking with the guy in the broadcast booth. I felt like I was speaking with the guy who uh, played the cat had a cameo on Seinfeld. He's really he seems like the same no holds barred guy. In, in every venue where you're seeing he, he does not really seem like he's holding back very much. And that's what, I think that's what makes him so compelling. And that's what makes it such a wonderful uh, experience to watch him uh, during the Mets games. I think he's the Mets version of Phil Rizzuto. Maybe that's strong, 
and maybe Yankees fans, if they were listening to this, go, come on. But he has a little bit of that Rizzuto-esque type of uh, aura about him. Does that make sense? I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm sure you, you, you know, I know it's been a long time, and there are those in the audience who probably never heard of Phil Rizzuto. All they know about him is the Yankees shortstop and maybe the Holy Cow, the Money Store commercials. But if you listen to Rizzuto during the games, and I remember as a young kid, Yankees fans would enjoy uh, Scooter on the broadcast. And I remember they'd get a kick out of, oh, there's, they used to pan over the George Washington Bridge. There's Scooter leaving the game early in the sixth inning, going home. And, you know, now you have them making fun of Keith's drive back to Sag Harbor. So there's a lot of similarities there. I've always felt that way for a long time. I, I, I agree with you in the, in the aura aspect, that he's definitely of this world, of, of, of New York. And, um, you know, I, I do think that there is probably a little more folksy element to Rizzuto than, than Hernandez. Um, there's a little bit more, you know, he's the guy, you know, talking about the baker around the corner or, or, or getting back to Cora and, and things like that. I think there's an element of cool with Keith. And you see that, you read that in the book. And, and you see that in, um, I mean, you could still picture Keith hanging out at, you know, at, at, at Daniel in, in New York City or, or a fancy restaurant, whereas you can see uh, Rizzuto, you know, is hanging out at the sporting goods store signing autographs. I think that's a little different, but in terms of the aura, no question. And, and in terms of when they say something baseball related, you believe it. The former baseball players from the 70s, 80s could do a book tour. And, I mean, Keith went on Barstool Sports. He was on with you. He was on The Fan, the traditional outlets. And he was on Bravo talking about his relationship with a real housewife of New York. I mean, how many, how many athletes? So he's kind of a renaissance man in, in a way. It's, it's amazing to me um, how many different genres and how much publicity. As someone who just recently wrote a book, you could probably – I know it's Keith Hernandez, so it's a little easier for him. But you could appreciate how difficult it is to get the kind of publicity that he has and – the amount of time he's had to put out there to talk about his project. The promotional tour was absolutely spectacular. And the folks in the Little Brown Publicity Department did as good a job pumping his memoir as can be done. And having conducted a multi-city book tour for Fastball John, I see they hit as many spots as possible. The Coupe de Grace was getting him on Twitter. That was a master stroke. And as yeah. obvious as that might seem, it's not the easiest maneuver to execute as successfully as they did. And, um, I mean, it was, it was not just, I mean, you can have a, a, a book release and then, you know, the, uh, the author is on Twitter, but he may not be as visible as Keith is now. And, and, and Keith went a step further and really revealed parts of his personal life. Here's like, you know, someone arguably considered the coolest ball player in, 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 in New York in the past 30 years. And here he is talking about his cat. And that's so <laughs> right. relatable and that's so huge. Absolutely. And he's doing fa- Facebook videos with, you know, with the crust in his eyes from waking up, walking down the driveway with his cat. It's kind of, it's kind of ironic. You know, we, let's get to your project, Fastball John, which for those listening, it, you know, I know DeQuisto has nothing to do with the Mets. So, but, you know, I've done baseball shows. I've done shows that transcend just what we do here on a weekly basis, the Talking Mets podcast. And you go on Amazon and you got 53 reviews and it's five stars. To me, uh, kudos to that. That's not easy. You can't create 53 Russian bots to do that. Uh, I, here's what I get a kick out of, Dave. I don't know if you've been following. Have you been following the Brian Colangelo uh, burner account story over in the NBA this yeah. week? Have you been following that? Somewhere, the last yeah. review on August 23rd is from a, a guy named Honest Abe. That was one of Brian Colangelo's burner accounts. So who knows? Maybe he 
he's reading fastball, John. But in all uh, in all seriousness, uh, talk a little bit about that project because you mentioned it briefly about almost being a baseball uh, Netflix series, and the review, the, the review, the most recent review, um, you know, talks about it being one of the best baseball memoir bi- biographies ever written. Um, and, and I think it ties in pretty well to those who enjoy the game, those who listen to this podcast, who enjoy baseball, forget about Diaquisto and his story, uh, take it as Diaquisto being the subject, but you could probably talk more about the process here of the, you know, somebody trying to make it in the big leagues and and someone going through the ups and downs. And Diaquisto was a big time prospect and he was a big time player that had some, had some highs, but a lot of lows. So he represents more of what you probably would see in Major League Baseball than maybe what Keith Hernandez turned out to be. Yeah, I mean, I mean, basically, just to address the the Amazon thing, and the, there's a way to examine the quality of the reviews. And I was so touched that, that Johnny wanted to uh, to write a book and and wanted me to, to help him uh, write his book. So I did as much research as I could. I examined basically every baseball book release in the past six years. And I broke it down by Amazon reviews. And there's another outlet called Goodreads. I, am, I examined the, uh, the Goodreads reviews. I examined book, book sales with uh, BookScan. I really broke everything down. And I looked at, you know, the quality of certain reviews. And you can really dig into it. You can really dig into the data by looking at the review history of those who post them. Some books you'll see a ton of reviews by folks who never posted anything on Amazon. And this is what I call a low-calorie review. It could be friends and family, could be colleagues if the author works at a large media company. It's more impressive when you're seeing the same folks that review dozens or hundreds of sports books leaving a five-star review. And Fastball John enjoyed many of those what I call quality reviews. And, and actually, it's so funny. I do recognize Honest Abe, and uh, he, he reviews a ton of sports books. So when he said the things he said about our book, I was, I was extremely touched. So, I mean, a lot of research went into it, a lot of reading these reviews also. And I would avoid the five stars if it was one line like, oh, this book's amazing. And, and they don't really say anything else. That doesn't help me. But when somebody says, all right, he, he wasn't honest enough or, or he didn't take ownership of his faults. Uh, and then this for, for other books, um, I would say that. I read every single negative review of every baseball book released in the last four years. So I took that knowledge and went back to Johnny and I said, here's what people don't want to see in a book. And we have to do everything we can to research it. If you, have, if you had a problem with somebody, we're going to have to talk about, you know, we can talk about that, but let's see if there's a way we can research it and give that person a voice if they're no, no longer alive. Like he, he had um, an issue with a manager and um, we went back and we researched all the articles that that manager um, was involved in where he spoke about Johnny. So we gave the manager a little bit of a voice in that process. So um, we, tried, we tried to create the most honest memoir, baseball memoir ever written. And I'm pretty sh- I like our chances in the fact that we, we might have accomplished that. Yeah, absolutely. And you think about it, I mean, as a kid, I remember being, oh, 12 years old and my my dad buying me Ball Four, which was a salacious book. And, and now, it, mm-hmm. looking back, it really wasn't. But that's like, would you say that's like the barometer for baseball books? Like that everybody, Jim Bouton's Ball Four starts there, and then everybody's trying to meet or exceed that kind of um, that kind of bar. And in recent years, I got to tell you, Dave, uh, you know, this. Listen, the way that publishing is now, you could self-publish, you can. 
you know, do a whole bunch of blog posts. You guys started out actually writing blog posts on in-stream yeah. sports. I remember the baseball thing factory picking up a lot of it and that morphed into this project that clearly anyone who check it, you know, fastball, John, go on Amazon, download it, purchase it. And uh, forget about the fact that John wasn't a member of the New York teams. It's, it's worth a baseball story. And, you know, did you, did, was that the barometer for you? Was ball four as someone who's a, who was young and probably appreciated that work um, thinking about putting something together. And then here's Rob Nyer, Chad Finn of the Boston Globe, the Fresno B. I mean, Brian Kingman, former major league pitcher, putting some editorial reviews. Uh, that's got to feel pretty good. And, and Brian Kingman saying it's from a player's perspective, it's the best description of life for professional baseball players since ball four. That's mighty high praise. It, it really is, and 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 ball four. I mean, it, it, it's it's you know it's it's like when people talk about you know what's the best Saturday Night Live cast, and everybody says oh it's just Dan Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi, but I mean they were the first ones to do it, so it's really tough to to compare to that. Um, but basically, for me, the the Mount Rushmore baseball books is Fountain, Jim Brosnan with the um, the, the the real season. Um, it was uh, Sparky Lyle. Uh, with the Bronx Zoo, Peter Golenbach's great book, and most importantly, um, Joe Pepitone with his uh, Joe, You Could Have Made Us Proud. That is the, mo- the tightest, greatest memoir I have ever written. And when I read that, I said, oh, God, we had a high bar to, uh, to reach, to, to be that good. And um, so that, that's kind of what we, we tried to accomplish. You know, I, I think that the other stumbling block is, is getting the book, book into Barnes & Noble as an Amazon book. I mean, bookstores want to know that if for whatever reason sales are light, they can return the inventory to the publisher. That's part of the economic risk of being a respected publishing house that Barnes & Noble can, can't get from Amazon publishers and independents. And, and we understood that. But the, the other uh, difference between a book release from a major, major publisher and going the Amazon route is the buy-in from the publicity community. It's relationship-driven. You know, the Giants, they're one of the classiest organization, organizations in professional sports, and they completely supported Johnny as well as the book. You know, and, and our, our book tour was mainly relationship-driven from people I knew and people Johnny knew. But that's really what, what drives, you know, the sales of, of sports books and books in general. I mean, every great book release receives traction from one of five elements. It's the New York Times. It's Oprah. It's Howard Stern. Remember the Lenny Dykstra release a couple of years back? Right. I mean, that, that basically right. he – Howard Stern sold maybe 10,000 copies for the guy. And, and 60 Minutes and also the publishing community buzz in general. Strong word of mouth at bookseller conventions across the country, or an author who enjoys a deep re- reputation among other writers. I mean, that's you know, th- you know that that's really what makes it happen. And, and with Keith, you know, getting back to him for a second, his active high-level platform, being a broadcaster, was an, also an enormous boost. Uh, like five years ago, Eric Sherman wrote the uh, the Steve Blass book about the uh, the pitcher from the Pirates, and it was a surprisingly regional hit in the Pittsburgh area because Blass was an active broadcaster at the time. So. I mean, it really helps to also have that high-level platform, obviously, and, and that's really where these things go. Last thing for me before I get to where you're, uh, you know, some of the things you're working on. You're, uh, you're a guy that likes to do a lot of reading, a lot of research, a lot of baseball, a lot of sports research. Are there books that you recommend, not just Fastball John, obviously Fastball John, go out and get it, but are there other books that have um, interested you? Because we have a baseball audience, and I think a lot of times when they listen to this podcast, I would hope that those that come on and do great work, whether it be, you know, their work as a writer or, uh, you know, on a, on a, on a site or, or an author, people go out and buy mm-hmm. those books. And 
I know you're, you're plugging fastball, John, but more importantly, for a guy that's done a lot of research and, and read a lot of good books, a lot of good writing, what other type of recent things are you recommending to the baseball audience listening? I love – basically, you could almost say Dan Epstein is, um, is probably a mentor of mine and a good friend of mine. I absolutely adore Big Hair and Plastic Grass and Stars and Strikes. And uh, he, he digs into, you know, uh, the craziness of the 70s baseball – and, uh, and especially Stars and Strikes with uh, the 1976 season. Um, I, I absolutely adore his work, and, um, and he's, he's done so much to really uh, support me in, in many ways. Um, I also absolutely – I'm reading a book right now. Um, it was crazy. It was called Out of Left Field. It was Willie Stargell's you know, quasi-memoir about the 1973 Pirates season. And um, there's a lot in there if you can find that copy. It's out of print now, but usually there's a couple over in, in Amazon that you can find. And also um, Jay Jaffe uh, did a tremendous uh, coverage of, you know, the Hall of Fame uh, selection and election process with the Cooperstown casebook. Um, I have that one on, on my desk that I consult almost like every other day. That's um, one, of, one of my favorite books right now in terms of baseball. And, and of course, the Joe Pepitone book is like the Goodfellas version of a baseball memoir. And, and, I, and that, I'm crazy for that book. That's interesting. I've I got to check that one out. Jay Jaffe's been on the program as well as Dan Epstein. So definitely great authors. So what's, what's coming up for you, Dave? Uh, great work on the Hernandez piece. Obviously we talked about the hardball times and some of the work you've done there. Give uh, a little teaser. What can the listeners expect from you? Obviously follow you at InStream sports on Twitter, but anywhere else they could find you and other things you got coming out. Let's uh, let them hear it. Well, very quickly, I'm, I'm working on a piece right now, which I may or may not, complete. We'll, we'll see how things go. And I'm, I'm really fascinated by what, what's happening in the NBA with uh, LeBron James and, and how he's carrying the team. And um, I'm, I'm trying to figure out if there's a way to quantify uh, competitiveness. And not just obviously wins and losses and whatnot. That's the easy way to do it. But if you want to go a little more granular and, and, and see if there's a way to create a formula of competition. And, and that's kind of what I'm working right now. And, and I may have that up at the hardball time shortly. Um, but that's, that's something, you know, I believe that there's a way you can take the run different in baseball, at least the run differential and, and subtract the, uh, the lead changes. It's all about run, run differential and lead changes that create the excitement in, uh, in baseball games. And I'm looking at the world series, uh, the history of the world series. I'm trying to determine which is the, um, the most competitive world series of all time. And they're at least the top that's 10 interesting. and, and trying to be as objective as possible in that regard. Is there is there a World Series your gut's telling you that you hope comes out on top or you don't want to reveal that? Is there like something personal to you? Like I really hope after I crunch the numbers, this World Series pops up as the most, I guess, compelling is the word I would use. Um, I, I found a couple that I didn't know, and I'm going to wait to see uh, how the numbers bear out. But, uh, you know, for right now, it's just the, the usual suspects are there, but there's a couple others that, um, that I, was, I was surprised to see up there. And, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people forget how exciting the 2005 World Series went between the Chicago White Sox and the Houston Astros. It only won four games, but they were all close four games. And, um, and, also, and also for us in, in New York, the, uh, the Subway Series, the 2000 Series, Yankees won it in five games, but each and every one of those games was a compelling, exciting match. And, and I think a lot of absolutely. people forget that. No, absolutely. Well, Dave, listen, you've been generous with your time, interesting stuff. Appreciate you shooting the breeze with us here on a Sunday night. Always makes for good talk. Let's do it again and keep up the good work, my friend. 
Mike, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me on, man. That's Dave Jordan. Check him out at InStream Sports on uh, Twitter. And you can check out the book Fastball John. And again, I have to tell you, and I haven't, I have Fastball John. I really have to sit down and focus. I mean, I've got the Davey Johnson book I got to read. I got the Keith Hernandez book. I got Fastball John. I got so much stuff to catch up on. And it's so hard because in almost baseball books, you should read them now, baseball season, but the off seasons when you really have the time to catch up and read these books and what have you. So anyway, let's take a quick break. When we return, we'll have final thoughts wrap up. Uh, we'll get you an idea of what we're going to do for the Subway Series. And we'll be back with final Talking Mets uh, comments right after this. Hey, Mets fans. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. If you're looking for the best unbiased and independent coverage of the New York Mets, then look no further than MetsmerizedOnline.com. Metsmerized Online is the go-to place for comprehensive Mets coverage, including exclusive interviews, daily original articles, great weekly features, in-depth analysis, minor league reports, game-by-game breakdowns, and so much more. Find out why thousands of fans turn to Metsmerized Online every day to get the latest news and opinions about the Mets. Coming from an impressive staff of the most passionate fans and skilled writers ever assembled all in one place. Check it out for yourselves, Mets fans. Go to MetsmerizedOnline.com right now. That's Mets, M-E-R-I-Z-E-D, online.com, and get Metsmerized today. All right, wrapping up here, Mike Silva, Talking Mets podcast. Uh, So the Subway Series is next week. And God only knows after the show we had today what the heck we're going to have to chat about next week. I know that Mets fans are probably definitely not looking forward to the Subway Series. But look, the Subway Series in its heyday has always been a good midsummer, early summer now, sometimes, gee, September. It used to be May, June, July, and that'd be it. But now that the schedule is the way it is, it could be any time. A way to get postseason-type atmosphere without the postseason. I always thought it was a good warm-up and a good way to push those Mets teams to compete at a higher level. I know it was an annoyance for the Yankees, but I think if you really threw some truth serum to Joe Torre, I think he'd say that it had some value for them too. So we'll have that. I will be solo next week on WLIE 540 AM. So I know what we're going to do is it's going to be 830 to 10, so it's right in the heart of the game probably only get about four or five innings of the game, uh, but we'll be on during the game. Rich Katina will be at the city field and he'll be coming on. And I'll have to talk to him how we're going to do that because that'll be interesting how we're going to play that one with you guys watching the game and me being on live. And how can I create some good content for you there? As far as a podcast, uh, I'm pretty sure I'm going to have one. I got to figure out how that's going to look. Definitely going to be on WLIE 540 AM. And uh, who knows, maybe that will be kind of like the podcast for the week because of the Subway Series being on a Sunday night. It always kind of is tough when the Subway Series is on on a Sunday night. Now, what I have talked about, and I got some very good feedback on Twitter regarding this, was to do these midweek or reactionary shorts, like maybe 15 minute or so, uh, how can I say, little, little like State of the Unions that are more timely in terms of news than waiting for Sunday's pod- podcast, which is more of a, a feature-driven show. It's like a variety show. We do a lot of 
about the current team and the state of the union. And it's a weekly recap and it's a looking forward. But there's also like we did today with Dave Jordan. We're talking about the Keith Hernandez book. We're kind of, you know, rapping about or 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 talking about 20 game winners and pitchers and evaluating pitchers. So it's a little bit different on the Sunday show. So if something happens during the week, you know, you guys said, hey, why not jump in for 15 minutes as long as the Sunday show stays so, quote unquote, sacrosanct. I think what I may do is definitely try to elicit some calls and uh, and see what we can do. We definitely have to. Do, now, I know some people have asked for a live call in show, but we had that disaster during the off season with the crank calls. And I really don't want to offend anybody because some people use inappropriate language. So I've been using the call in line, which I think is OK, but I know it's not quite what you guys like. Um, so maybe we'll do a live call in show and see if everybody could behave. We'll see that. So anyway, check me out next week uh, for the Subway Series edition on WLIE 540 AM, and then we'll figure out the, you know, maybe we'll do something on Monday night post-Subway Series. Of course, I want to thank Dave Jordan today. Dave, you can check him out at InStream Sports. Check out his book, Fastball John. I want to thank all of you for listening all the time, the good folks over at Metamorized Online for all their support. Of course, you can check me out on Twitter, at Mike Silva Media. You can get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and also at our friends, The Grueling Truth, part of the iHeartMedia Network. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your week. We'll be back next week with another edition of the Talking Talking Mets Podcast. Till then, be well.